when I interviewed with them, the two interviewers in the most gentlest way said, you're awesome, but we realize your passion and your heart is also in other areas and you need to pursue that. And it was like one of those moments where, okay, interesting. They like, you're not the best fit, right? It's like, you're not the best fit for this, but it's not to say that you're not, you're failing. Cause they, they you tell when you're perfectionist and type A, mm-hmm. Peace Corps helped me be less type A because you just have to let go of control in Peace Corps. But uh, they were, that was another conversation with, with two interviewers who is a moment, right? And it was a fleeting moment, but it was a, okay, I'm not a good fit for this when I thought I was. It's How She Did It the show where women of color share their often winding and rarely linear career paths. I'm Yolanda Enoch, and on today's show, I chat with Kat Yalung, whose family immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines when she was two. Her lifelong focus on service and social responsibility led her down a career path that includes the Peace Corps in Nicaragua, and to her present job leading a not-for-profit tech incubator here in Los Angeles. For links to the things we chat about, check out the show notes page for this episode at howshedidit.club slash 14. Uh, My name is Kat Yalung. I am the director of our startup launch program here at Bixel Exchange. Uh, We're the Center of Innovation and Tech at the Los Angeles Area Chamber of Commerce. And everything we do is in support of growing the greater Los Angeles tech ecosystem. So we're a big believer in how do we make sure diversity in the diverse face of Los Angeles is also represented in technology. So we have a couple of main programs that we do it with. Um, We connect with our tech talent pipeline program. We connect underserved high school and community college students to jobs and career pathways in tech. And then I specifically run, um, it's our not-for-profit tech incubator, no cost and non-equity one-on-one mentorship for early stage entrepreneurs in tech. The reason why I love this current job at Pixel Exchange is because we live in three different worlds. We live in the public sector, Mm -hmm. um, funded through the Small Business Administration and the state of California, and then also in the private sector with the chamber members. So the AT&Ts of the world, the UPS, Mm -hmm. um, and then also uh, just interacting with the tech sector. For those who have listened to previous episodes, like my very first podcast was with Mickey Reynolds, and you were, and this is one of the questions that I ask all of my guests Mm -hmm. at the end, like, who are your possibility models? Who are people that you're inspired by or who who show you that it's possible to live your dreams? And you were were Mickey's. And so I heard that, and I'm like, I've been hearing your name (laughs) around, and I'm like, who is this cat person? This cat person. <laughs> <laughs> this cat woman. Who is this cat woman? Oh, this cat woman. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go back a little bit mm-hmm. to tell me about your life before you started high school. I'm an immigrant. My parents brought me to the United States when I was two years old. I was born in the Philippines. Oh, so you were, you know, I thought I was you alien. were meaning that you were like first generation in the U.S. Oh, I had no idea. I was an alien until the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Mm. Naturalized citizen. My dad was the last generation of Filipinos to be recruited by the United States Navy during that time. Ah. Mm-hmm. And we immigrated into California, Okay. spent maybe less than a year in California. And my parents 
uh, are both engineers, and they had a friend in the Philippines who said, come up to Spokane, Washington. It's a great place to raise children, and houses are really affordable. So my parents made the decision and raised my sister and I, so it's the two of us, in Spokane, Washington, which is right next to Idaho. Not much diversity there (laughs) at all. Do you remember anything about your time? I know you were two, but do you remember, have any memories of that time? Before my immigrating here? Mm -hmm. No. I mean, I have a lot of memories of elementary school and growing up in the woods and nature and loving that and block parties. My Both my parents being engineers, I have a lot of memories of that. Um, mm-hmm. My mom's an electrical engineer. My dad was mechanical. I think having my mom as an amazing female figure in that space. Yeah. She was actually the first woman engineer in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. How was Spokane? It was actually really challenging in that we, I first moved to a... Uh, Air Force Base, which there's a lot of new people, a lot of new students, really diverse from all mm-hmm. around the world because military is just moving. Mm-hmm. And then my parents decided to move us. I was I remember being there for a couple of years and I loved it. Everyone was really welcoming. Were you Everyone, on the base? On the base. Uh-huh. On the base with military housing and meeting a lot of new people from different parts of the world. And I just remember how diverse it was and enjoying that diversity and how everyone was just really friendly. Mm-hmm. And then my parents decided to buy a home mm-hmm. in the suburban parts of Spokane, Washington. And Spokane is not diverse. So I remember in third grade... Most places aren't. (laughs) Yeah. In third grade, they bought bought a house, moved there, and I remember being, I think, one of the only girls in all of elementary school who had black hair Mm. and darker skin. Mm -hmm. And that was a challenge. A challenge for how people received you or how you felt that you fit Um, fitting in. And then also people didn't know, I don't think it was blatant racism, but the subtle racism part came, came, came across for sure. People just didn't know. They're like, what are you? Where are you from? Why don't you have blonde eyes and blue hair? I mean, those questions would come up and just the standard of what was beautiful was very obvious that it was blonde eyes and light skinned. Yeah. Are you fluent in in the language. So my parents speak Tagalog and their dialect. They mainly speak their dialect, which is okay. called Kambangbangan. Mm-hmm. They do, I do not, okay. I can understand a lot. So my replacement for that is speaking Spanish fluently. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandma spoke Spanish. Um, Filipinos, for those of you who aren't too familiar with the Filipino, it's colonized by the Spaniards for 500 plus years. And then the Americans came in, uh, Spanish-American War and was trying to get the Philippines as a U.S. territory for a long time. So all of our education in the Philippines is in English. So that's why a lot of Fil- Filipinos speak English. And then um, Filipinos are really big on assimilation and really want, especially my generation of parents, really want your children to not have an accent, to not act any different than others. And they decided to raise my sister and I in a very non-diverse town. My high school, I, I'm, we're jumping ahead, my high school was 200, class of 200. I was the only full Asian, two black students, maybe another half Asian of 200 people. Why do you think there's a a desire for parents to have their kids assimilate versus... I think parents automatically defer to protecting. And anytime you're in protector mode, you don't ever want your kids to be ostracized, bullied. And the best way you can protect them to that is to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging that. And then also I think from a Filipino cultural perspective, my 
my dad was Navy and that was his ticket of bringing his family in and getting them citizenship. And so being really respectful of what the opportunities he brought and what they did as immigrants and how impressive it was to buy a house when I was in third grade and he came here with no credit history and things like that. Did they, when your parents got married, did you know if they always had the desire to move to the United States or was it they learned about this opportunity because they were recruiting? recruiting? Mm -hmm. I'm not actually sure. That's a good question. Because the Americans were in the Philippines for a short time that the Americans were recruiting them very heavily, but I don't, I'm not sure if, I know America is always a land of opportunity for many, so going there, quote unquote, going there is, is, is a, you know, a huge accomplishment in life and bringing your family and getting citizenship and safety just generally is a big, big part of it, yeah. developing countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your sister is older? Younger. Younger. Okay. So Although was she I born in like here? I'm the youngest. <laughs> she was actually born in San Diego. Yes. Ah, San Diego, California. Okay. Mm-hmm. She inspires me all the time as well. Why does she inspire you? Because she pursues her passion and she loves working out and loves health. And she manages two studios at home that are yoga, TRX, and um, spin studios at home. Yeah. Hmm. And Spokane, Washington doesn't have a lot of workout. You know, it's something I think more of a trend. And so she's, you know, the owner's right hand and managing a team of, you know, 40 instructors and two studios. And she got certified. She's one of the few in Spokane that are certified in TRX. And TRX is a cool, you know, suspension training that was also Mm -hmm. military born. So, and she loves it and she's awesome at it. Um, So what were some of your interests and things you liked to do when you were younger? I was a tomboy. That was another thing that I didn't mention. Uh, From fifth grade to about Ninth, tenth grade, all of the clothes that I wore in that year, I could still wear today. Oh, well, that is very nice because oh, you wore like super baggy. Super baggy. I was like, it's not like I haven't gained a pound since. No, nope. it was like, nope. no, I wore things that were super way too baggy. big for me. I was a tomboy, so I loved basketball and I loved Kobe Bryant and I loved the Chicago Bulls era, Pippin, Rodman, and Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved TLC. <laughs> Master P, No Limit Records, oh Puff and Mace. That was in that was all fifth grade to ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two hundred people. Was this a special school? Like, was it private or was it just your public school? My parents could not afford private, so uh, public school, but an incredible public school. I realize now how incredible. Did your parents it was. pick the neighborhood? Because of the schools? I'm pretty sure they did. I took AP classes in high school and had some very incredible teachers. And those AP classes are still harder than some of my college classes. Mm. Did you play sports? I definitely played basketball since the fifth grade. And I was typically the only girl and one other best friend who was, you know, I was the odd Asian one. And she was the (laughs) tall white girl. And we were, she was Rodman and I was Pippin. And yeah, that was us in elementary school. But... High school, I also played sports. I played volleyball and basketball. Okay. Tried to play volleyball, and I wish jammed my fingers. I was like, I'm done with this. Like, how That's do tough. people set without jamming their fingers? I'm done with this. I use the elbows to protect me, but <laughs> it's not legal. <laughs> volleyball is one of my favorite sports to watch during the Olympics because mm-hmm. those women are they're beasts. beasts. They're beasts. I also did martial arts and. In high school. Okay, so you've been doing martial arts for... Well, I did Kempo Karate. My dad was uh, very big into martial arts. 
Uh, he was. He actually had swords in the house and would practice. I remember growing up and watching him practice with nunchucks and swords. <laughs> and then we, my sister and I, both they enrolled us in kempo karate, and we did it for a couple of years. Uh, and then I had to quit because I was doing basketball and volleyball and school and working. I actually started working my my first W two job in in high school, my junior year, and then I babysat on the side and dog sat on the side too. Oh. You're busy. Active. I was a very active high school. I volunteered actually a lot in high school as well. Mm-hmm. What types of volunteer work did you yeah, do? Yeah, I remember um, the food bank. And then also, I don't know if it was a chamber, but it was something government related mm-hmm. where like getting youth council and organizing around um, citywide events. So what got you interested in volunteering? volunteering? Um, both of my parents in the Philippines, my dad grew up very poor. And so he likes to tell us stories all the time about, you know, living nine people in a room this big. Yeah. And having one bathroom for 200 people in a building. And so when we moved to the United States, just being really mindful of how fortunate we were to have roof, shelter, food, safety. And so for the holidays, we actually volunteered a lot as a family. Growing up, I remember this very distinctly. Um, For the holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving, always going to homeless shelters and feeding them or just volunteering our time at a Goodwill. So we did that together as a family. And... I don't know. Those were values that I were still instilled on serving others and that are less fortunate than you. And so I I feel very grateful that my parents introduced that into my life because it's been something that's carried me and been a huge part of who I am. When you graduated high school, Mm -hmm. what did you want to be when you grow up and why? Yeah, I went in high school. I went through this phase of I want to be an elementary school teacher. So I was a big sister for four years. And then uh, I decided, nope, I think that'd be too boring. I want to do engineering. Like my parents are both engineers. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I want to do biomedical engineering. So I was fortunate in high school to have amazing programs in the Mesa, Mathematic, Engineering, and Science Achievement. And uh, also like a career center type person who was amazing and helped us pull together a portfolio and experience and encourage us to do more volunteer work. But I was set on after high school I wrote a lot of scholarship essays about being a biomedical engineer because I was obsessed with the idea of building body parts for whatever reason, and that was my pursuit at the time. You graduated high school, Mm -hmm. and you went directly to college? Yes. Education, especially for Filipinos, my parents always, I remember from elementary school, them always saying, the one thing that people can't take away from you is your education, so you prioritize that first. Mm I applied for a lot of a lot of different places and ultimately went to the school, Gonzaga University, mm-hmm. which is private and very expensive, yes. but amazing Jesuit school. And I applied for a lot of these small scholarships that actually paid for my first couple of years wow. in college. Okay. And is the only reason why I left Gonzaga without, you know, more than 30, 40 K mm-hmm. in debt. So why did you choose Gonzaga? They were really focused on servant leadership and service and like Jesuit philosophy of um, social responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that was obviously a huge part of who I was in high school and still, yeah. And, and they also offered me scholarships. Yeah. Private universities have that ability, especially mm-hmm. based on, you know, lower income and mm-hmm. things. How far was Gonzaga from home? Not far. Spokane, okay. Washington. I was in Spokane too. So I was one of the few Gonzaga students who didn't stay on campus and I lived at Ever? home. That's how I was able to save a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I worked two jobs during college, but I worked um, in the continuing education part continuing education nonprofit part of Gonzaga University. And then I also worked uh, at a hotel in hospitality. Mm-hmm. So. so you're at Gonzaga. You got a 
bachelor's mm-hmm. in business administration and then international business and human resources management. Yes. So that journey, yeah, you know, college is a, I don't think we should be forced to pick one major right. in college. And We're you did not. No, I did not. I actually studied mechanical engineering for two years. Okay. So I studied mechanical engineering for two years and I loved it. Did they not have a biomedical engineering? They did not. They did not. Uh, The other option was University of Washington and they had an incredible engineering program there. I could have done biomedical engineering there, but mechanical was in route to biomedical. So I studied mechanical engineering for two years. The decision to leave mechanical engineering was really, really, really pivotal point in my life where I remember having this debate with my calc teacher who I'm so thankful for in just helping me realize I had other passions in life. And the time I was working two jobs, I was volunteering and I was studying mechanical engineering. And there was no way if I was going to pursue mechanical engineering, could I have kept doing my, all of the other things. And so it was a decision to say, okay, if I switch majors, then what do I want to do? So I was pursued and checked out marketing. Mm -hmm. And then I, thought to myself, I don't want to convince people to buy things that they don't need. (laughs) So I switched um, and was very fascinated by different cultures and doing business in other cultures. So I switched to international business. And then on the human resource management side, I think it was mainly kind of the training piece of it that was fascinating to me because I had worked in the continuing education department and my boss there, she's single mom, inspirational, still a mentor for me today. So Was there something that you remembered that Finally, were you like toying with the idea of like, mm-hmm. do I want to do my biomedical engineering? Do I want to do mechanical engineering? Mm-hmm. Continue that. Walk me through how decision. you, yeah, like how mm-hmm. did that come about? Was it like one particular thing or mm-hmm. was it just like this tsunami of different things that really forced you to mm-hmm. figure out if this is what you want to do and wanted to do something else? When I was in college, you're young and you're easily influenced by your parents. And oftentimes you're still influenced mm. today at our, at our age, still influenced by parents, but both of them are engineers. I remember speaking literally, I, was, I, I told you my, my, my calc teacher mentioned mm-hmm. him briefly uh, and I loved calc, but I hated physics. And the thought of having to take two more years of physics was propelling enough to say, do I want to continue mechanical engineering for two more years? I chose also Gonzaga because it was small classes. You really got those 30 students. You really got to know the teachers. They really cared about you. It was obvious. Having, I think, numerous teachers and a counselor who really helped me explore like what my other passions were and paying attention to that. Did you initiate those conversations or were they kind of like checking in? Because it's a little bit of both. Okay. I think it was a both conversation of, you know, I, really, I clearly loved working in hospitality and I also mm-hmm. loved working in the continuing education department. And I also volunteered at the Career Center. That was an interesting passion in college at Gonzaga where I was helping resume reviews and there was etiquette training. And that was, I don't even know how I got into that. That was something I pursued. And I would literally go on volunteer boards and look at different things that I want to do. But um, I think it was a little bit of both sides and them questioning, you know, you're doing all these activities. Is mechanical engineering a part of that path? Mm-hmm. And so I think having kind of those adult mentors to ask that those questions is really important. When you're younger and still figuring it out. We're all still figuring it out. But. Yeah, but then them putting it in a way where it's like almost gentle, where it's not mm-hmm. like I'm I'm telling you that maybe you're not in the right right place, but like, hmm, you seem to be showing a lot of interest here. Like mm-hmm. maybe you should look more into that versus, mm-hmm. you know, like sometimes like you 
feel kind of defensive. Like, is there, are they seeing something in me mm-hmm. that is saying that like I should have been doing Like, I can't this? do mechanical engineering. Yeah. And what is, I had, no, th- that moment happened a lot where I thought I was failing myself and I was a very high performer in school and studied a lot. There was a lot of mechanical, you know, other engineering major friends who I'm like, you're not studying at all and you're acing everything. That wasn't me. I was studying a lot and I was spending a lot of time in the library. I was very committed to school and working two jobs so I couldn't do anything else. The other pivotal moment in college was I remember interviewing actually towards the end for a Coca-Cola internship where you would easily kind of move up the rankings through kind of a program of like being, I don't know, just learning different sides of the Coca-Cola. And I found it super fascinating. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. When I interviewed with them, the two interviewers in the most gentlest way said, you're awesome, but we realize your passion and your heart is also in other areas and you need to pursue that. And it was like one of those moments where, okay, interesting. They... Like, you're not the best fit, right? It's like, you're not the best fit for this. But it's not to say that you're not, you're failing. Because they, they, you tell when you're perfectionist and type A, mm-hmm. Peace Corps helped me be less type A. Because you just have to re- let go of control in Peace Corps. But uh, they were, that was another conversation with, with two interviewers who is a moment, right? And it was a fleeting moment, but it was a, okay, I'm not a good fit for this when I thought I was. How was it when you heard it? Was it hard to hear it? Yeah. Did you not believe them? It's hard to hear. Of course yeah. it's hard to hear. You're a 20-year-old owning the world. Yeah. I got this. I can do whatever I want. I just graduated from college. And you always realize in college we have no perspective. We're so young. Yeah. Um, we have perspective. But we're, you know, limited perspective. And so having people older than you doing a lot of interviews, I, mean, I just remember having to really digest it and uh, take it in and, and understand why. In my mind, I had failed. But then I realized, obviously, later that it was not, it was the, one of the best conversations that could have ever happened. Yeah. Obviously, your career thoughts and mm-hmm. what you want to do with your life have changed mm-hmm. when you graduated. Yeah. Or what did you think that you wanted to pursue? So I was, you know, I was, I had a job, you know, mm-hmm. all through college. I was working in hospitality. Uh, I was working at this beautiful boutique hotel called the Davenport Hotel in Spokane. Still one of the most beautiful hotels. And so I was making money, mm-hmm. surviving. And then I said, I probably should get a quote unquote, you know, big girl job after college. So I studied human resource management. So I was looking at human resource roles. Yeah. So I was still, you know, doing the the volunteering, but the HR came about. I, I found a role, HR generalist at the nonprofit, a big nonprofit hospital, Holy Family Hospital. Were you already volunteering with them? No, I wasn't already volunteering with them. I was, it was just a role. It was a part-time role. I was specifically looking for part-time because I still wanted to continue. I was making good money as a servant in yeah. hospitality. You make the minimum and then you make tips and specifically a part-time job, but gain the experience in an office setting. And I was very, actually very hesitant in an office setting, but I was fortunate enough Why to also. Why are you hesitant? Because I really enjoyed, you know, hospitality was good. I, it was easy. And it made me make people happy serving, giving them food and giving them drinks. And I was making good money. So it was, it's comfortable. Life was good. And then I knew I needed though to pursue more hard skills. And so doing this HR generalist role, mm-hmm. I actually didn't do that for very long. It was less than a year only because I decided why mm-hmm. it wasn't, not that it wasn't for me. I enjoyed it. And I had an amazing team of women that were inspiring there too, an HR director who was amazing from Australia. I remember having a moment while I was still working in hospitality where someone just asked me, 
why are you still in Spokane? And I couldn't answer the question. And so I knew in college, oh my gosh, the most pivotal moment in college, oh my goodness, I skipped the semester. I went to, I did an American semester program and I studied international environment development. I wanted to study abroad and Gonzaga had a study abroad program to Florence, but I didn't want to do something that everyone else was doing. So I found this at the study abroad office. I found this opportunity to do an internship in DC and then also go to another country. And so I originally was like, this is my opportunity, biomedical, I could go to Brazil, and I could also do an internship in DC. So I go, but instead of going to Brazil, it's South Africa. And I study international environment and development. So that's the semester. So my how did year. that go from what you thought to someplace else? Oh my gosh. That semester in American University changed my life and is the reason why I still work with entrepreneurs today. I completely missed that. Uh, my homestay mom in South Africa was teaching business skills and entrepreneurship. And I remember it was like a wealth creation track. And I remember saying, wow. Like that education is powerful because it's helping people survive, but also provide for their families and provide for their community uh, in a way that I'd never seen before. I was able to see my host mom in both, it was the first time in South Africa, it was in 2006. And I, that was the first time I took out a loan actually in college to be able to do that program. Yeah, it was it was life-changing. The whole semester was, wasn't really a class. It was my instructor at the time, uh, Joe, was a facilitator. He called himself a facilitator and said, I just am going to introduce you to everyone in the international environment development space that does work and share what they do and why they do it and how they do it. And it was macro players and micro players. And it was beyond eye opening. And then we went to South Africa for a month. Everything we were studying about South Africa and the social, economic, environmental issues, we saw in real life when we were there. You learned about their social issues, their environmental issues. And then you go there and speak to people who used to be a part of the apartheid regime and then have switched is like a whole other powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And then you meet, you know, people who live in, you know, dumpsters who don't, who the closest hospital is seven miles away. It's scarier. They don't have running water. That's a whole other experience as well. Like a poverty at another level. My dad would talk about poverty in the Philippines, but experiencing it and seeing it in another country, another continent. And South Africa is a fascinating history and culturally 11 official languages and it's beautiful so I was I fell in love Mm -hmm. I fell in love in South Africa and then told myself I took a picture of 2010 World Cup coming and I like in four years I don't know where I'm going to be but I want to go back and I'm coming back and I don't know how it's going to happen but I'm coming back did you and I did I made it happen somehow and it was when I was in Peace Corps and (laughs) just being able the first time I went to South Africa was structured the second time was all just unplanned and Mm -hmm. for World Cup and went for two weeks before World Cup and the first week of World Cup and that's just experiencing a world event like that in a country that had gone through so much political, social, economic strife was phenomenal. Seeing Bishop Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, Alicia Keys, Juan Ace all on the same stage was mind-blowing. Don't know how that happened, but (laughs) it did. Oh, it's very, very cool. You realize that HR, HR is not for you. How? You went to the well, Peace Corps. So, the, again, a conversation. The, yeah. I, I feel like your life can change in a second with one conversation yeah. or one question. So when someone asked me when I was working in hospitality, why are you still in Spokane? And I couldn't answer it. I said, my passion is I know I want to volunteer. I know I want to learn another language. And I had a life-changing, transformative experience in South Africa and in D.C., and why am I not doing more volunteering? So I remember coming back from DC and researching all these volunteer opportunities and they cost thousands of dollars. I didn't have thousands of dollars. So I remember Peace Corps coming up and Peace Corps recruiters coming and saying, okay, you can volunteer. 
But it's what just, did they come to? What do you Gonzaga? mean? Gonzaga. They came. They came to yeah, they, they would recruit. Okay. Um, actually, Gonzaga is one of the highest suppliers of Peace Corps volunteers. Ah. Top, I think, top five um, in for a school. And we're so focused on social responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I also remember meeting Peace Corps in, in Washington, D.C. And so I said, well, maybe I should just apply because it doesn't cost money. All the other ones that cost money, I don't know where the money's going. I mean, it could be going to overhead. I applied in December while I was still at this HR job. What was the application process it's like? It's 50-page application oh. online. And then they have to make sure you're medically fit, psychologically fit, dental, like every, all these little checkpoints because the government mm-hmm. is paying for you yeah. to live in another country for two years. And you just request regions of the world. You can request Peace Corps as an organization really tries to match you with your skill set and experience with the needs of the country. Did you have, what regions did you select? I, I was keen on, I'm like, South America would sound so romantic and amazing and I want to mm-hmm. learn Spanish. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can just request it, but they could also send you to who knows where. I think Peace Corps today is in over 130 countries still. And each country is run differently based on the program director and country director and based on the needs and developing needs of mm-hmm. country. And so how did you feel when you got Nicaragua? Oh my gosh. So the application process, people are typically have to wait a full year just to go. Mm-hmm. So people can apply and then leave a year later. I applied in December and left in May. Whoa. So that process was, you know, I tell other Peace Corps volunteers that were that I was in Nicaragua with, I'm like, that's insane. Like just didn't know how quickly that happened. So Remember, had they communicated that it like expect for it to take a year for you to get assigned yes, somewhere? Yes, they tell you it could be a long time. And so I wasn't even sure. And you don't even know if you're going to get accepted. Yeah. And if, you know, you're missing signatures on your application because there's all these little things that you have to do um, and get signed off for. And I remember being in this room, in a little tiny room like this, interviewing secretly at my Holy Family Hospital HR job. And I'm like, hi, yeah, I want to do Peace Corps and I want to learn another language and I'm this and that. And she said, okay, thanks for thanks for the interview. Like, I think I want to move you in the process. And then it was just kind of a yes. And then a phone call, like, I don't know, a month later and saying, okay, we're going to have you like fill this in. And then getting an invitation and saying, hey, we want to accept you in a Peace Corps, and we would love to invite you to a specific program called the Small Business Development Program uh, in Nicaragua. Okay. And you would be leaving in May. So if you choose to accept, you need to let us know by this date. I have when that piece you, of paper and invite. When did so. you get notified of it? April. Oh, so you had like less than a month or two to, to make a decision and then pack up your stuff and go. Yeah, they give you 100 pounds. They say no, no more than a hundred pound limit to take to another country. That is not a lot. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not How did all. your parents feel about you going? It's a good question. My, I'm terrified. I'm sure terrified. Yeah. I was like the first child they raised in the United States of America, and my, I remember my mom saying, "I'm proud you're pursuing something that you're passionate about and where your heart is." even though I wasn't going kind of the corporate route or, you know, having a stable salary because Peace Corps is volunteer. Uh, you don't get paid, but they pay for you to live. So so for, how do you support yourself if you had debt? I had to pause a lot of a, a subsidized loan. So I paused. But you would be able to get the grant mm-hmm. on that. Okay. And then thankfully my parents, there was one loan that I still had to continue paying for mm-hmm. that wasn't more than a couple, maybe a hundred bucks a month okay. that he... That my dad really took on to help. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. And yeah, so I was able to do that. And Peace Corps is typically a 27-month commitment. So three okay. months of 
pre-service training and then two years of service, it's like getting airdropped in a random place and you don't know if anyone's there. But I was fortunate, very, very fortunate to have an incredible program director, Georgia, and an incredible country director and a quote-unquote high-performing post where there were programs that were doing well Mm. in Nicaragua, where that is not the case. You talk to any Peace Corps volunteer, ask them about their experience, it will be worlds of difference outside the fact that there's a cultural part but what you're doing so the small business development sector i remember getting the invite and being like, i'm going to teach high school students entrepreneurship what i'm not, I'm not an entrepreneur <laughs> I, I don't know like yeah i don't know i mean yeah i got business school but i how am i going to do this and i'm going to do it in spanish what Okay, so talk to me about that. Like, how was that three month of training? Was that to get you fluent? So, three months of pre service training is called community based training, where you're in the homestay and you're learning social. Homestay? Uh, Yeah, they do a homestay where you live with Nicaragua. We're in Nicaragua. Yeah, the pre service training is called community based training because it's in a community, in the culture, in in the country. And you're living with a home and you're learning the cultural customs, you're learning the language and. Um, they, the technical skills training, cultural skills training, language skills training in three months. Really mm-hmm. intensive and crazy. It, no, you do not learn the language in three months. I've, I was actually the slowest language learner, and they had to give me oh, like a you... one. That was literally the slowest. They didn't, they weren't, wasn't sure if I was going to pass. But the turnaround time was when they saw me teach. They gave me a one-on-one teacher because they're like, you're not speaking and you're not you're not the same rate as all the other volunteers. There's 20 of us in the class. So Did you know that? They told me that. But you you hadn't realized it yourself that you were... No. Okay. I just I was a perfectionist, so I didn't want to speak unless I knew it was going to be perfect okay. at the time. And type A. And so they gave me one-on-one, but I remember that the tables turned when they saw me teach. They, I remember being terrified. It was my first lesson in Spanish with flashcards in Nicaragua. And I remember being so scared, but then once I got in the flow and was teaching creativity, mm-hmm. and so um, I don't know if you remember the show Pit My Ride. So uh, I, yes, I love Exhibit to this day because of Pit My Ride. Because of him, because <laughs> yes, he's badass. Man. He is. Yeah, he was a good host. He, he was. was a good host. He really was. Yeah. So, um, so what was it about? My creativity oh, lesson. Was yeah, yeah, so I created the lesson was Pit My Ride, and it was in Spanish, and I was like, I don't know how to translate this, and so it was Inchulame Mi Moto Taxi, and so I taught them how to think about, like, pimping out their moto taxi, which is a big business there, and it was, I had the time of my life, and I didn't, I, like, forgot I was teaching, I forgot I, where I was, and I forgot that I didn't know any Spanish, but, and the kids had a great time, and it was one of those moments, like, I was so scared of it, and then just all of a sudden, it transformed into this, like, amazing uh, of a high being with the students and seeing them have an learn about creativity in a unique way what helped you to flip the switch and stop worrying about like how you were coming across versus mm-hmm. just like teaching to them like what do you think mm-hmm. helped you in that moment yeah when you were doing your first lesson sure I remember shaking with my cards and I hadn't spoke Spanish and my you know one of the trainers was there like she needs to be on you know she's slow and we need to get her up to speed and we're about to drop her in in, in a site and yeah. be by herself so uh, I, I remember the moment of seeing the students with the activities and pimping out their moto taxis and uh, 
them asking questions and I was able to understand them mm -hmm. and then me being able to still facilitate this activity with limited language ability, they're learning and seeing them go from knowing nothing to having an amazing time. Like it was a fun interactive experience and I was lost in how much fun everyone was having and mm -hmm. the students were having and they were in 11th year um, and they were such a good class. They were all so quiet and respectful. And I'm like, where am I? What is going on? So I think that switch happened when I just, you getting lost. And I think it's one of those things where in life, it's like when you forget you're doing something mm -hmm. and you're in the flow is where your calling is. Gonzaga taught me that is like where, where can you serve the world? And it, it makes you reflect and think about your skills and making sure it matches what the world's needs are. Mm -hmm. That was definitely a value, I think, from, from Gonzaga. Yeah, I think when you are doing something that you're passionate about or your like gift, your own superpower, what you're supposed to do, it's natural. Mm -hmm. And people recognize that and see that and they're drawn to that because of it. And Okay, so you do the two years. Um, so actually... So I was there for four years. Four. I was there for four years, largely because, you know, badass program director again, but it was a 10-year pilot program. It got adopted into the national curriculum. Uh, Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere said, uh, I want every high school student their senior year to learn entrepreneurship and write a business plan and do business plan competitions. And so it was then nationalizing the curriculum and training teachers. I mean, the model was train the trainer. Mm -hmm. So it was always working it, not not just me teaching, but leaving the legacy of the teacher being excited about and teaching this entrepreneurship curriculum and running business plan competitions. So I stayed on to train teachers all around Nicaragua and then um, stayed on also to train the next group of volunteers who came in mm -hmm. during their pre-service training. Mm -hmm. So still not really getting paid, but yeah. being paid like to survive, yeah. right? Like $200 a month, which is nothing. When your rent is a hundred bucks a month and having a hundred bucks to do everything else yeah. was, didn't go a long way. Like meals were still costly and, you know, I have other people in my life who'd helped me stay, who, who are the reason why I could stay my third and fourth year and still continue to pursue. I loved, I worked at four different school, schools when I was there and loved what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So I stayed on and then traveled around getting to know this beautiful country and training more teachers yeah. and getting them excited. So at what point did you feel like you were completely comfortable with the language? How long did that take you? <laughs> yeah. People always ask, like, how long were you fluent for? I think it was, I remember being seven months in and saying, I could go into an auto mechanic shop. I could go into like a hair salon. I feel like I could figure my way out because being fluent is relative in that mm -hmm. you go into any situation and you, you know, converse. Like I was conversing, working at four different schools, teaching over 200, 300 students at a time and hopping between four different schools, I didn't realize how quickly my Spanish got mm. better. You were completely immersed. Uh, completely immersed. At one point, I remember thinking, dreaming, getting mad, getting emotional only in Spanish. <laughs> only in Spanish. That's when you really know yeah. you've hit Where you're dreaming in Spanish, you're fluent. Okay, so you leave. Your your two years, well, your four years are yeah. over, yeah. And you decided to no to not extend again, or was that not an option, or were you yeah. ready to try Why something did I else? Leave? Yeah, I probably would have stayed and still stayed there, but Nicaragua was a very hard country to be in as a female. It is a very machista country. Gender violence is a real thing. Peace Corps, being a Peace Corps volunteer, it's very difficult. There was a lot of violence that happened in Peace Corps. There were three rapes in one year. Wow. Thankfully, not, you know, I never was held at gun or knife point, but I was eight feet away from 
some Peace Corps friends of mine getting stabbed with screwdrivers. And now they're married because of that weekend. But, um, you know, things like that that get to you. And also just walking, walking around was stressful. And it was was time. It was was one of those where I'd been there for four years. It's a long time. And it was ready. And I was also in a toxic relationship with a local Nicaraguan. The positive in that is I fell in love with bachata because I fell in love with bachata and salsa Mm -hmm. while I was there. Yeah, it was time. And then, so did you go back to Spokane? Spokane? Yeah. So I uh, wanted to just, safety was a real issue there, Mm -hmm. obviously. And so I wanted to be my family and had been actually through a lot of post-traumatic stress, PTSD issues. Mm -hmm. And my, the readjustment back to the United States was terrifying and hard. How much did your family know about the daily? Oh, I did not. Okay. They're probably going to hear this and say, (laughs) what? What? Um, why she never should have stayed that long. Oh my goodness. My mom came to visit. My sister came to visit twice and we had an amazing time. You know, when everyone was asked, would you do it again? No, I wouldn't do it again. Do I recommend it for everyone? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's an incredible experience. I would never take it back and and found so many tidbits of golden nuggets of life because of it. But coming back into the States, I I went back to Spokane and wanted to be safe and feel safe Mm -hmm. and Hospitality was an easy one. I was safe in hospitality because I knew it. And so a lot of my friends I worked with previously at the the Davenport Hotel had gone on to take over management at other. So I I helped one of my good friends open up a sports bar again and take over management of a sports bar. So I was bartending for six months, seven months uh, at home. And I loved it. I was, you know, helping rebuild something like a startup. Mm -hmm. I think now I'm like, oh, that was a startup. And same with the hotel. I was started at the hotel when I first opened up this boutique hotel. Um, in high school, that was a startup. And so did that for six months. And it was another moment when I was in Spokane, I said, did someone tell you again, did you start (laughs) questioning yourself? Why are you still here? Yeah. I was like, I just did Peace Corps for four years. I did entrepreneurship, education, and training for adults and students. I need to get a job that propels my career. Yeah. Right. One of the the amazing things I did when I was back in Peace Corps gives you a small stipend, you know, like 10,000, which is not a lot, but it's something, it's something. And so uh, with that money, I I actually, once you were done with the program. Yeah. Once you're done. Uh, Yeah. So once you're done, it's like a readjustment money. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I used that part of that for South Africa in 2010, but I I came back Mm -hmm. to United States in 2011 from Peace Corps. So in 2011, I I traveled around for three months visiting one-way tickets, visiting friends, took trains, one-way tickets, airplane tickets. uh, Yeah, went through Oregon, California, just hopping around, seeing where I wanted to land. Because I knew I wasn't going to stay in Spokane, but Mm -hmm. I knew Spokane needed to be a bridge and a stepping stone for Mm -hmm. feeling safe again. And being with family and being close to them. And so you really made that ten thousand dollars stretch. <laughs> Goodness. I yeah. I mean I But I guess you were used to it four years of oh, living off of nothing. Yeah. And I remember leaving the Peace Corps with two suitcases. And it was the hardest thing. I packed four years of my life in two suitcases. After that, I said, never again do I want to be attached to material things. Mm-hmm. And so I try to live as minimalist as I can. Yeah. After the three, three months of traveling around. What were your top cities? Yeah, I decided on, okay, I need to move to New York because a lot of Peace Corps friends were in New York. Okay. Or Austin, Texas, because I loved Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And then uh, San Francisco. Another Peace Corps volunteer was there. Okay. And there was another uh, friend that I had met that in Peace Corps that was also there. So just, you know, the thinking of who was there and Mm -hmm. supporting. And so when I was figuring it out, um, love came into play. And so I started, you know, there's dating someone that I'd met in Peace Corps who Mm -hmm. was also in San Francisco 
So then when I decided to move, it was a, where else can I, you know, have the support system and then also learn about entrepreneurship. And I remember when I went to San Francisco, I'm like, what is this definition of entrepreneurship in tech? I, like, I don't understand this. I just did entrepreneurship with in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. which is a whole different type totally of different mm-hmm. type of person, community um, issues that you're dealing with. And so the move was like New York's was on the other side of the world, not on the other side of the States, far away from family. Austin seemed a little bit too slow paced, but probably could see myself settling there eventually or mm-hmm. imagined at the time in 2011. And then San Francisco was, I could go and learn entrepreneurship and tech in San Francisco. So I moved there. So you moved there and then how do you... What happened after? Yeah, like how do you <laughs> get these opportunities? How do you figure yeah. out the next thing to pursue? I was, you can't go to San Francisco in 2012 and not jump into tech. Just, and so I remember just networking as much as possible, meeting a lot of people in tech and the first job offer, I just jumped out because I needed to make money. I yeah. just spent a certain amount traveling around. And it was an office manager role at a tech company. And then it was a Y Combinator graduated Ooh. company. And they offered me a pretty decent salary. How did you get that opportunity? Did you have a connection or was it Yeah, just... it was a friend. It was an introduction okay. through a friend. And they just wanted to interview me. Mm-hmm. At the time, thinking about this, it's absolutely ridiculous. It was three co-founders. And another engineer, and they wanted to hire an office manager. <laughs> Why do you need an office manager? Because they didn't want to do some shit. And so they're like, we're going to hire someone to do some shit. And a full-time office manager? And a full-time <laughs> office manager. AKA, they had money to kill. Yeah. Right? Oh, because they're Y Combinator, so they... They'd raise money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And okay. it was cool. I was... It was near field communication. It was Arduinos. It was hardware. I was very fascinated. I mean, being the mechanical engineer yeah. mind, I was fascinated by all of that. And uh, the technology was amazing, but I am not meant to be an office manager and be in one location or in one room every single day with a routine. I have to have a different routine. And, you know, my job today is like living in different worlds and Mm -hmm. working with advisors and startups and partners and funders. And I never know what the day brings. So it was bad news bears. And I actually got fired from that role. My first tech company I got fired from. And it was a huge ego shot. Did it? Did you feel it was coming or was it a shock? It was a shock for sure. And I remember getting fired and I I didn't have a car at the time. So I rented a zip car, a convertible zip car. Just, <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to roll around in a convertible in a zip car when I got fired and just found a random restaurant. I, f- I think I found a Latin restaurant and just like sat there and had random conversations with strangers at this Latin restaurant mm-hmm. in Alameda of all places because I'd never been to Alameda. So I wanted to go there. But it was a recovering from that was really, really rough. Um so shot to the ego. It's like, why did I get fired? But then I was also like, why are, you know, why do co-founders in tech, why do they do what they do? Why do they start companies? And so because of that fire, getting fired, it propelled me to really question other tech companies and what they do and why they do it and how they do it. Mm-hmm. And so I was lucky enough. I'm like, okay, what can I do to get the most exposure to other tech companies? And this thing called TaskRabbit existed. Mm-hmm. And it was just a company where you could put a profile up and tech companies could post things that they needed mm-hmm. and you could just take odd jobs mm-hmm. and projects. And so I just took anything and everything that came my way. And I, in a very short amount of time, worked with a lot of different companies. I remember feeling really lucky in that um, I didn't know anything about operations. And I worked at Stitch Fix, which recently IPO'd. <sighs> yeah. And I'd never worked oh, in fashion love. and tech. Mm-hmm. And I worked in their warehouse operations and learned so much from them. And then Keep, um, KIP was like a gaming and rewards company. And I just did a lot of like different odds ends, things for them. Um, and then there was a linguistics company that I did 
like marketing and sales for mm-hmm. another marketing SaaS Mintigo. I don't know if they still exist. Uh, marketing SaaS platform, which a lot of SaaS did some like sales mm-hmm. and convention kind of type business development work for them. So I did a little bit of like marketing, sales, operations, and just learned a lot. Yeah. But I questioned, and I was with early stage founding teams at the time, and I questioned like, like who are they? Why are they doing what they're doing? And how are they doing it? And so I was really on this quest to understand startups and tech because I had such a poor experience in my first role, yeah. but learned a lot from it and thankful for now, you know, the struggles. I also found Muay Thai at the time had leaned in that and as an outlet for just um, figuring things out and also just learning about other tech companies and trying to regain my confidence again, you know, after getting shot, your legs chopped off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What made you make the trek to LA? LA? Mm-hmm. Better weather and cheaper living. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything is so relevant because I remember before I moved here, I was just like, LA is so expensive. And it is. But when you compare it to like San Francisco or New, New York, you're like... Super affordable. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not affordable, but yeah, yeah. very affordable. Mm-hmm. I remember San Francisco being the first time I'd ever uh, spent more than $200 on rent. I spent a thousand on a one, uh, just a bedroom. And we shared one bathroom between three girls and didn't even have like a living room shared area. Um, and I left San Francisco. I just remember the the weather there. I, it's cold. June, July and August is freezing. And I'm, I love my lakes. I love the warm. Mm-hmm. You can't wear shorts in San Francisco. <laughs> and so, yeah. And then how expensive it was. And I left San Francisco at a time when they were throwing eggs at all the Google buses. And I'm like, I think it's time. Yeah. <laughs> had a good sports year in San Francisco. I learned a lot from the tech companies. It's time. And yeah, another a relationship at the time also too. He moved first and then I moved a little bit later, but LA weather was amazing. You can't beat LA weather. And it was significant. We got so much more bang for our buck rent wise. How did you get the opportunity at General Assembly? Volunteering. I started volunteering at, uh, I think I volunteered to do some jobs. Did you know about General Assembly from being in San Francisco? No, I did not. How did I you found discover? out about? So when I'm, whenever I'm unemployed, I volunteer or I uh, look for um, educational opportunities. Okay. So I don't know where that came from, but I like, what classes can I take? And I remember finding General Assembly through some classes. And then I was also, um, like, in San Francisco, when I was unemployed in San Francisco, I was a member volunteering for the, like, Filipino um, community and doing the Filipino, big Filipino Pistahan Parade. And I met a lot of people through that. And so uh, when I moved here, I don't remember what some of the volunteer activities I did. Oh, actually, my first job was I was belaying and doing teams in ropes course, uh, like, building like high ropes course building. That was my first real job okay. in LA and then found general assembly taking classes. And I'm like, mm-hmm. the first class I ever took at general assembly was design thinking for social innovation. And so, so that's volunteer, you started volunteering there and then you learned about an opportunity. And since you had, yeah, they were hiring for this audience development producer role. I'm like, I don't even know what that <laughs> is. People that are coming to attend courses or it's events. driving. Yeah. It's driving attendance to events. It's okay. organizing events and growing the audience. At the time, they had just started in first ever web development immersive course, and there were, I think, three full-time people. Okay. Was there in the early stages in 2013 here in L.A. and organizing four or five events a week. Actually, completely forgot. I was unemployed for three months here in L.A., and the best way for me to get to know everyone, I went to every single tech event for three months. And how did you find those? Eventbrite, Google. You gotta be, you know, you gotta find it. One thing you learn in Peace Corps is, like, you figure stuff out, and you find things. You can find things and make it work, but... 
just meeting a lot of LA tech organizers, partnering with a lot of them through being an audience development producer and then later on joining the outcomes team, which is more focused on helping General Assembly students get jobs and Mm -hmm. therefore just expanding that to partnerships in general and doing more business development. But uh, it was a journey working with GA, helping propel and launch the LA campus and now it's grown. And and Mickey is a huge part of that growth um, was the reason we we went into downtown. Yeah, one of the things that she said when I interviewed her, Mm -hmm. when she said you stuck out to her because you had the top knot, (laughs) <laughs> she was like she wanted to know how to do that but then one of the things when she first got involved at general assembly mm-hmm. she said that you were so helpful okay these are the people these are the organizations mm-hmm. that you need to know and i'm going to make introductions so my question to you is sure. where did that mentality or way of working with people where did that come from you that's another great question the why of where it came from and how when i think about my upbringing my parents were always very helpful. And I think that's a Filipino thing. And I think that's a immigrant thing. And, you know, we were able to move to Spokane because we had the family there who took us in under the wing, Jim and Linda Hall. He let my dad live in their house for two weeks and he didn't even know my dad, but he'd worked with my mom as an engineer. And recognizing that in life, when you go through hardships, there's people who help and that make all the difference. So I, I think growing up with that and volunteering and just being you know, my parents still to this day, it's like humility is the most important. Gratitude is the most important. And you always have to remind yourself of like the position you're in. I think that's probably where it mostly stems from. Mm-hmm. And then being fortunate enough to have female role models. Um, Angela Ruff at Gonzaga University was one of my first bosses who I remember. Female, single mom, running a nonprofit and just kicking ass. And when I didn't know something, I could ask her and she would just take the time. Like, you know, having those moments where... Taking, taking the time, sharing, wanting to see me grow. Like I could tell she was genuinely invested in wanting to see me grow. And So how did you build your network here? Yeah, I guess I never really knew I was a natural quote unquote networker yeah. until someone told me. It would just be those things where, you know, Nicaragua, when my friends in San Francisco went to Nicaragua and met one of my former colleagues that works at the Peace Corps headquarters there. And he's like, oh, I'm not surprised you know Kat because she just knows everyone. <laughs> and it's like, I, I, I didn't know what that meant yeah. until... I've moved enough to different cities and figured out how to build relationships and just like integrate. I think it's part community integration and part, you know, taking the time to get to know who people are and ask questions. And I genuinely am very curious about people's lives and <laughs> like to ask a lot of questions. Sometimes I probe too much. My team here is like, Kat, you're asking too many questions. We need you to stop. When I was starting to learn about LA Tech and learn about, um, the community, I think I fell in love with the people that were here. Their backgrounds were so unique. Mm-hmm. They all came to L.A. for different reasons, and they were all really creative. And building the network was, I don't know. I don't know. That's, I don't know how you, it's a good question. <laughs> I, it's like something like, that came I just do it, to but um, You ask questions, and you put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Like I think a lot of people get scared of. That was an example. Yeah. I, I hear a lot from other females that are like, I don't want to go to events where I don't know anyone. And there's a lot of. Like I was born, I was definitely born an introvert. I think mm-hmm. I'm an extrovert now, but I was born an introvert mm-hmm. and then slowly got into, because of hospitality and because of Peace Corps, it just got me, Yeah, cuts out all your fear. Mm-hmm. Like I was terrified of a lot of things in Peace Corps. And once you do things like that in life, you start to just get braver and braver about doing scary things. But I, I crave being in the uncomfortable zone because that's the point where you grow the most. Yes. And Peace Corps was that for me. And mm-hmm. so, and so now it's, 
in LA was like, I'm just going to go to a ton of events. I don't know people and just talk to them, you know, learn about them and their stories and continue to just grow. And they introduce you to other people Mm -hmm. or they recommend another thing or another organization. And then we're just volunteering, you know, volunteering, taking classes. Those are great ways to build your network. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized, I think I'm very similar to you. I grew up introverted. Mm -hmm. And then I kept, I was like wearing it as a badge of honor because I started hearing like, you know, Elon Musk, he's an introvert and Oprah's an introvert. And I'm like, I'm an introvert like them. So that (laughs) means I'm going to be great. So I really held that as something that was like really important. And I have a friend here that I met, um, Carla, I interviewed for the Uh podcast. And I remember a couple of times I was like, yeah, I'm an introvert. And I remember the first time I said it, she like raised her eyebrows like, huh? Mm-hmm. And then the second time I said it in a different situ- situation, she was like, mm, you're not an introvert. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and then, because I had never taken like Myers-Briggs and sure. I took it and I was an extrovert. And um, one of the things that I struggled with when I moved here, I was like, I want to do something. I want to get involved in tech. But I was like, but I'm not technical. I'm, like, I'm not like a software engineer. I'm not mm-hmm. a product manager. I'm not any of those. Mm-hmm. So I would feel so nervous about going to tech events Mm -hmm. because the inevitable question would be like, Mm -hmm. well, what do you do? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't belong here. So Mm -hmm. it was so hard for me to go to events. I remember I was supposed to go to an event. It was actually at General Assembly Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Santa Monica and I didn't go because it was going to be like hundreds of people. It's scary. I'm not going to do it. And then I had an event a few days later. One of my friends literally, he asked me, what time do you need to leave to get there? And at the time, I was living in Pasadena, mm-hmm. and it was like rush hour, so mm-hmm. it was going to take me like an hour and a half. Do you remember what tech car. event, too? It was for girls in tech. It yeah. was... I used to organize some girls in tech events. And it was like a happy hour. Okay. And I was just like, I don't know, because when I RSVP'd for it, you could see how many people were coming, and it was like 75, and I was like, I can deal with that number of people. Yeah. And then the day of, I checked it again, and it was like maybe... 200 yeah and i was like nope too many people (laughs) and so my friend was like well what time do you need to leave and i was like well i need to leave by five Mm -hmm. because i figured that it was going to take me an hour and a half coming from pasadena to santa Mm -hmm. monica during rush hour and so he was like okay i'm going to text you check in and make sure that you leave and then when you get there you just have to meet two people Mm -hmm. and then you can leave that's a good friend and i was like it was the only reason why i went and when i went to that event i met i didn't meet megan but i met someone who was involved in spark fest as she mm-hmm. did years ago and if i wouldn't have gone i would not have known about mm-hmm. that event mm-hmm. i wouldn't have met megan and megan's that megan hosted mm-hmm. i learned about esprit and esprit de yeah, yeah i learned about amazing her. women in tech stuff and her podcast and everything and else for i just think about like me being afraid yeah. to show up but that was just well, the thing that That's I learned true. about myself was if I hosted an event, I was like the life of the party. So then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start volunteering at events because then I feel like that I should be here because, hey, I, I'm i volunteering here. So yeah. I deserve to be here. And then I was after a while, I was like, you know, maybe you don't want that to be your crutch. <laughs> like, do you always have to volunteer at something yeah, to feel to like be that there. you belong? Sure. And I was at an event. I think it was a We Are LA Tech event. And I was talking to someone and I made the like self-deprecating thing. Like, well, I'm not technical. It's crazy the like, stories we tell in our head. Be like, days. I do HR. And yeah. then the guy that I was talking to was like, well, you know. You're still a woman in tech. M- most companies need HR, whether they're tech or not. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You're right. <laughs> but it was like so weird. And I finally like got over it. And now I love going to events by myself because I'm like, you have to talk to people. Because you never know. Yeah. Yeah. 
you were forced to talk to people. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to build, yeah, build it community, is. build people. And you just never know what's going to lead you or who, who it's going to connect you to mm-hmm. when you go by yourself. And it really yeah. forces you because if you go with a friend, you're it's easily that just crutch. Gonna... Yeah, like, oh, we're mm-hmm. going to talk to each other versus mm-hmm. me. Like, you could either stand here by thing. yourself mm-hmm. or you can talk to some people. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking the same thing as you are. Mm-hmm. Like, we all are nervous. You think you're going to mm-hmm. be, like, I always have the fear of, like, showing up and, like, everyone knows you and they're happy to see each other. And I'm just like, hi, guys. I don't know any of you, like, feeling like you're going to be that. Sure. Half the time, it's 60% of the room <laughs> that's terrified to be there. Didn't want to come. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how do you go from General Assembly to Bixel? I probably visited and toured over 150 tech companies in LA through General Assembly wow. because I was building relationships for the partnerships. for outcomes mm-hmm. and partnerships, um, for education, for marketing, but mainly for outcomes and hiring. And so I was making uh, building relationships with hiring managers with product design and web development. And I was partnership with Bixel actually came about and they had worked with startups and they had also done some work with students. And, uh, I had hosted a couple events at general assembly hosting, um, underserved high school students and introducing them to what it's like to be in tech. Mm -hmm. So it was a determined to succeed week, which is another nonprofit. And I had fully like organized and planned out a full week of exposing them to entrepreneurship and exposing them to tech. And I loved it. And I invited, I think Sergio Rosas, who, um, who was the previous director of the Tech Talent Pipeline, we had done a project together through his former role where we took a truck full of computers to um, like South LA for three weekends in a row and just taught people how to code. So General Assembly brought those teachers, they did the operations, and I fell in love with what they were doing and the impact that they were making. And it was clear they were executing on it. And Sergio having a first conversation with me when I was at downtown at GA and talking about what he was doing. I'm like, I am still trying to grasp what we were doing. Mm -hmm. It sounds really intense and amazing, but I need to understand it. So I had a lot of questions for him. And then he's like, oh yeah, we have another director that does the startup launch thing. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, tell me more entrepreneurs. And so I met Kevin Liu, fell in love with the team and was partner of theirs for two years before I even thought about coming on board. And it was just happened to be, I was kind of transitioning out uh, and, and looking for opportunities when I was at GA and Kevin Liu at the time was also transitioning out and got an opportunity working with a startup. It came, it came about at a time when I was also looking at other roles and I had a few job offers. I, if you feel fortunate enough to have had a few job offers to, I, I didn't even think I was you know, getting one or two, let alone like a few. I, mm-hmm. There were five specifically. Wow. And I'm like, how do I decide? And Bixel Exchange was it fit a lot of what I wanted, the skills I wanted to learn, the community I wanted to serve, thinking about my experience, very really varied, and being different every day. And I was still really hesitant because I was like, there's a government piece to it, and then like <sighs> compliance and data and yeah. like fundraising and budgeting. But I know I can do it. And, you know, I was thinking about the stat of men and women, of men apply for jobs where they're 60% qualified and women like won't even think about it. Yeah. Like, oh, it's that. We tell ourselves these things. things. And only have eight of them, so I'm not going to apply. Men don't even think like that. Like, like what? I got two. Oh, they'll be lucky to have me. (laughs) It's like the founders of Girls Who Code who talks about like raising our women to be brave, not Mm -hmm. perfectionists, which I love. (sighs) Bravery and risks and just doing it, like the fear. Actually, I was telling you, I was just doing meditation right before this and the meditation I was, was from fear to fun recognizing that feeling of when you overcame something that was so scary and then keeping that and holding that and thinking of it as a, a fairy dust of fun rather than <laughs> fear and letting fear like trap you or like whatever story that we tell ourselves in our head of like, we don't deserve here. We deserve to be here or we don't, or this is too scary. I can't do it. 
So when did you recognize that your talents and skills were enough? Were enough? Mm -hmm. I think I fight every single day with that question. You know, I think the imposter syndrome is a real thing that a lot of us suffer from. And I see it in my friends too, my close badass girlfriends who are like directors and founders and CEOs. And they're like, we question, I think collectively, and I don't know if this is a female thing or just a human thing, but Mm -hmm. when you have a supportive group of community, like Mickey, Mickey Reynolds, Mm -hmm. Megan Setti, other aspiring women, you who are doing amazing things and they say, wow, that's like, you inspire me. Or like, you have to recognize that even though you feel like you're not doing something, like you did this, this, and this. It's like when you have friends of yours who are close to you, who know you, say like, okay, take a step back and like, let's really look at like what you've been able to to do. I think it's those moments where validation of like, okay, I think my experience up until today has really, really paid off, even though it's been this like crazy windy road and like, and then, you know, getting nominated, I, I told you the, the LA Business Journal in 2018, Women of Influence. Um, and Mickey was one last year. Yay. And, you know, I recently saw Ariana Huffington speak too. And she talked a lot about this negative talk is like your annoying, it's like your annoying roommate or something mm-hmm. who's telling you, you have to like nip that in the butt and say like, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. What are five apps or services you can't live without? Well, my calendar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely can't live without my calendar. I live and breathe by my calendar. Oh my God, you're really making me think about this because it's like so second nature. I love class pass. I love variety and working out. Mm-hmm. Like I do meditation stuff on there. I do like, I did a parkour class on there. Oh, that is so scary. <laughs> <laughs> parkour is cool. It was crazy. I think Eventbrite and like meetup.com are cool because... It's just an easy way to use Google and just like, I want to do more outdoors things. So I'm like mm-hmm. going to outdoor meetups or, um, Eventbrite was the reason why I was able to find a lot of these tech events and just go to them. Eventbrite and meetup are, if you believe that you are so unique or weird that you're the only person that's into something, go to those and you will find thousands of people who uh-huh. are in the same thing mm-hmm. too. You'll find your tribe. <laughs> yes. The podcast that you listen to for meditations, what is it called? Yeah. Shell Hamilton's Meditation Minis. What is something you geek out about that you think more people should get into? <laughs> I geek out on a lot of things. I'm a gamer. I love Diablo. I love, I play Diablo as a, you know, seventh and eighth grader and then recently discovered it again. But every time I play, like go into an eight hour hole, which I can't do. That's another thing. I don't know if more people should do that, but um, (laughs) Hyperloop, the future of transportation and technology. Technology like that that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. is really amazing. I also really like superheroes. Superheroes weren't so cool before. Now they're really cool due to Marvel and Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think the whole Wonder Woman and Black Panther effect is going to be incredible, but I've always been in love with superheroes, and I, like, I'm obsessed. People who know me, I'm obsessed with Transformers. I think I have every single type of Transformers paraphernalia you could possibly think of, specifically Autobots, because, I don't know, they're robots, and they're cool, and they save the world, and they transform into cars, which are Mm -hmm. also cool. Who are your possibility models? So these are women of color who show you it's possible to live your dreams, or it's someone you think more people should know about? Founder of Tala, Shivani Soraya. I remember meeting her and already knowing about her company. It's like FinTech and being like, oh my God, I feel like I'm meeting a celebrity. She um, 
is building like credit score system and capturing data points on people who uh, using the phone and using an app um, credit scores for people all around the world mm-hmm. in developing countries. There's no data around people in developing countries, no entrepreneurs. And it's, it's amazing what she's doing. One of my girlfriends, Jacqueline, she's one of the youngest COOs and chief operating officers at a big healthcare company in Massachusetts, African-American black and just a badass and just coming from Jacqueline Johnson, okay, Mickey Reynolds, because she's, you know, just the, the, her trajectory and co-founding Grid 110 Mm -hmm. and she's one of the most generous and giving people I know. And, you know, speaking of helpful, anyone she meets is she's always able to like also connect the dots slash give you resources and point in the right direction in such a like real and honest way. Okay. So if people wanted to find you online, Mm -hmm. where should they go? Um, Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not like the most active on Twitter, but I try to capture a lot of cool, you know, activities that I go to and just being exposed to the world that I live in and a lot of different people and amazing events and people and organizations. And I try to capture a lot of that and mm-hmm. share resources on Twitter. A bigslexchange.com. Okay. Check us out. Anyone out there who is looking for no cost, non-equity advising as a startup tech entrepreneur, but also uh, on tech pathways, you know, if you're a tech company and want a badass interns from community colleges. Okay. So final question. Mm-hmm. The name of this podcast is How She Did It. Mm-hmm. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some career advice. Yeah. What would you say? Jump in places that you would least expect. Because we make plans when we're young. And we think, you know, I remember saying, oh, when I'm 24, you know, I'm going to be married. I'm going to have a career. I was was 26 (laughs) when I was getting married. (laughs) I'm going to be doing all this, you know, when I'm 33 this year. And not in any way wanting a family or marriage anytime soon. And, you know, just jump. I was fortunate to have a lot of awesome models, but it was I was such a type A and so perfectionist. It's okay when things don't go your way. And I, I know this now, but I didn't know it then, but it, like things always work out in the end. It's comforting. And that's the show. All things discussed in this episode can be found on the show notes page at howshedidit.club slash 14. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and also rated the podcast on iTunes. This helps other people find the show. Go to howshedidit.club slash rate for instructions.